Lucky you. Best 36 holes in golf. You tuned in to Alternate Shots Podcast. Barney's Army. Where we talk about golf. Barkies, Sandys. Poker. Bond. James Bond. Horse racing. I'm all in. Great movies. Alfred Hitchcock. We have no script. And down the stretch they come. We're glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> <laughs> Whoop. Let's start again. Billy, it would be um, uh, good timing for us to talk about Jackie Burke, one-time assistant pro at Wingfoot, great friends with Claude Harmon, an unbelievable golfer in his own in his own right. And, uh, you know, he founded Champions Golf Club and just passed away 10 days short of his 101st birthday. It's an amazing, amazing uh, life that he lived and his contributions to the game of golf. Everybody loved him, that experienced him. You know, Mike Gilmore pointed out how many people he's mentored over the years and taught to enjoy the game and the gentleman aspect of the game. A legend. We lost a legend. And uh May he rest in peace and thank you for uh, his contributions to the game. And he was born when the same year Wingfoot was born. So there's got to be some connection there. Billy, this is the opening shots of the first round of the 1929 Open. There's Bobby Jones, running one west. There he is. I think he went on to do pretty well, not only here, but in his career. All right, so Billy, here we go. Alternate shot fans, this is uh, our take, our view, our perspective, our thoughts on all the six U.S. men's opens held at Wingfoot, going back to uh, as we showed in the beginning, the first open in the Roaring Twenties, the 1929 U.S. Open, obviously won by Bobby Jones. We're going to talk about that a little bit. We also have to look forward to 2028 which will be 99 years from Bobby Jones's Open when it comes back to Wingfoot again. We just uh, celebrated our 100th anniversary at the club. Uh, 99 years since the uh, first Open to, to this Open, upcoming Open, is, is also going to be loaded with history. Yeah, so we're going to go through this in no particular order, except maybe in the the impact, the notoriety, the fan enjoyment and so forth and unfortunately in 2020 which was the open we're going to start with one by bryson dechambeau it wasn't as um it was pretty exciting especially if you were matthew wolf or um bryson dechambeau because if i ever saw a golf tournament a major tournament that was a two horse race or a two-man race that was it yeah and you know that was a bad year for sports. The Kentucky Derby got moved around. All 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 the major events had to suffer through the the whole COVID. For people that don't know, uh, Billy and I, members of Wingfoot, we could be at that open only under one condition that we were volunteering or we were part of the uh, need committee needed on property. There was literally just a few thousand people there. The disappointing part of the of the whole thing was on both sides. The fans didn't get to witness it in person, and the players didn't get the thrill of, of you know being celebrated by a host of fans at the end of the day. Well, I contend, and this is my view on the 2020 Open. I think the outcome wasn't certain if there are fans there. I think Matthew Wolf had quite a following, young, good-looking, swashbuckling guy. 
the the jury was out on Bryson DeChambeau. He turns out to be a really nice guy. Um, it was more than bomb and gouge for Bryson DeChambeau, but he did he did hit shots that we didn't see. The tee shot on eleven west on the fourth round. Nobody's hit that tee shot down there to that nearby greenside fairway bunker in in the rough. And and the rough didn't bother him. I mean, he demonstrated a little bit like the old John Daly, a lot of very good hands and very good putting skills on top of being able to hit it, you know, around the world. That's a brilliant comparison. Exactly. Four West in the final round, he was in the left rough again, way down there. He had a pitching wedge or something in the wedge category. I think he hit his wedge out of that rough 40 yards short of the green, you know, where you might putt from and I've put yep. from it rolled and rolled and rolled the pin. Look, the whole location was in the front sort of right center of the green. And he rolled it up about 15 feet, 18 feet, and made that birdie. So he, he, he had excellent touch, I think, and putting capabilities throughout the four rounds. Yeah. And his whole approach was novel and interesting. His whole approach to the game with the same length clubs and the, you know, the, scientific mathematical approach beefing himself up to get uh, more of a swing speed you know i i don't think anybody's ever approached the game like him before i don't know if it's a, a sustainable way to approach it and there's been a lot of success uh, with other players approaching it in a different way but but it was novel to you know to, to hear about how he beefed himself up to increase his swing speed and you know and then put it all together to win the open so you go back in history, the other opens. I, I don't, I don't ever remember, you know, Ogilvy or Zeller or Irwin or Billy Casper as being known for their length. They were pretty close. They may have been neck and neck, and they both hit wedges to the ninth hole, the one we're looking at right here. But you're looking at basically they were about 150 yards ahead of this gentleman here, with 150, 60 yard shots in, and and a Deschambeau, It's an okay shot, maybe 30 feet pin high. Wolf hits it like seven or eight feet, and it, it looks like game going to Wolf. But what happened? The Mongolian reversal. Even though DeChambeau hit this real slider, and and most people don't think there's from left to right on nine west is fast. You've had that putt from the front left of nine to the front right of nine. You've had that putt, and that's extremely subtly fast. Sure, as are many of the putts at Wingfoot. The subtlety and and. And so many of those greens, again, we've talked about it ad infinitum, the brilliance of Tillinghast on, with his green designs. Let's not forget, that putt broke toward the dice cup, toward Cesar and Oscar, toward the 19th <laughs> hole bar. It broke Correct. left a good maybe three cups. He makes it and got a hats off to Wolf. And I said this to him recently, he drilled his too. But then on the 10th hole, after they walked past 11, there was a couple, two or three shots difference that uh, DeChambeau never let go of. And that was a very good open. It was fun for us that were there, but you also saw views that you might not have seen had there been 30, 40,000 spectators covering the fairways and the greens. Yeah, it's true. And the coverage was uh, had to be adjusted. You know, other professionals, in the media industry had to figure out how to compensate for the yes, lack of Yes, that's credit. right. Let's go 100 years earlier, okay? So in 1929, this has been talked about a lot by us. Uh, your brother made some great, we may include your brother's clip because the times are very interesting. 1913, Francis We Met won the Open 
and literally changed golf overnight. Golf yeah. up until then was from Scotland, from England, from Europe. And yeah, uh, you, you, know, you little yeah. 10 or 15 people that play golf in the United States, you're gonna have to watch us. And then they say within 10 years, there were so many golf courses under construction, one of which was Wingfoot. And then we go into the latter part of the Roaring Twenties <laughs> during depression. And uh, we got Bobby Jones here. What most people don't, or I didn't know until I did my research, there were some competitors there. You had uh, Gene Sarazen. He came in uh, tied for second, a third at plus eight. Jones and Espinosa tied after all four rounds, which were played in three days. Remember, 27, 28, 29th. And those days, the Open was... Thursday, Friday, 18 holes, and Saturday, they preferred to play 36 holes. If weather got in the way, they had to do something different. But they 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 tied at plus six. They were also playing a 72 par. So 288 plus six, 294 was where they tied. Saracen was only two strokes behind with a fellow named Denny Shute. And then Tommy Armour, who was a member at Wingfoot after the Open, he was at uh, uh, fifth place at nine over, so three strokes behind Jones. So he, we don't talk about him too much. He was, in his day, he was formidable. He may have been one of the toughest guys to beat. Well, clearly he was formidable because there's, you know, there's Tommy Armour golf clubs. Not everybody gets golf clubs uh, named after them. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, so he must have been an extremely recognizable name for some uh, corporation to decide, let's make golf clubs with his name on them. Yeah, and that opened, there was another amateur named George Von Elm. He finished tied with Tommy Armour for fifth at plus nine. Before the Open had begun in 1929, golf was at its highest point ever. Bobby Jones was at the peak of his career, and this was a sporting event that the whole world was paying attention to. His opening round, he ended up setting the course record 69, first time he ever broke 70 in the US Open. Second round, he shot a 75, and third round a 71. Sufficient for him to have a substantial lead, and it looked like he was gonna walk in with the championship. He gets to the eighth hole, he puts his shot in the bunker, hits it across the green into the other bunker, hits it across the green, back into the first bunker and triple bogey, and now he has squandered a chunk of his lead. Espinosa ended up shooting 200 par for the last six holes, and so now Bobby needs to finish with three bogeys and a par to win, and he's on 15 just short of the green, and he does what every one of us does. He sculls it over the back, leaves it on the upslope, chunks it onto the green and three putts, ends up with a triple bogey. Now his lead is totally squandered. And as Obi Killer's best friend wrote about later, this would have been the greatest pressure that Bobby Jones ever felt. He's standing over this putt, 12 foot side hill, downhill, very fast. The green is surrounded by perhaps the biggest crowd a US Open had ever seen. Brantland Rice said that he was the greatest putter he had ever seen, and that was the greatest putt that he had ever seen. When the playoff started, Alice Espinosa took the early lead, and it looked like a good match, but Jones caught fire, shot 72 in the morning round, shot 69 in the afternoon round, and won by 23 strokes in the U.S. Open playoff. I want to thank you all for the kind way that you treated us all here. We, we just had the best time in the world.
had he blown this lead, it would have been, a, as Obi Killer called it, a blot on his soul. He did say for the rest of his life that he was convinced that had Bobby not made the putt, he would not have gone overseas and that he would not have won the Grand Slam. It could be said that Bobby Jones went here and made wing foot. There's some truth to that. We are, of course, a great club and a great golf course, but it certainly put us on the map. There were amateurs, and it's an interesting topic today because we just witnessed something that hasn't happened in over 33 years. Um, Nick Dunlop, who's a 20-year-old sophomore from University of Alabama, came to the Coachella Valley and, uh, you know, the Birdie Festival. What, what do you think it would have been 100,000 to one? The only thing he said, it's not surprising, he, he said he was so nervous. I don't think he ever, ever lost the nervous but how many perfect shots. He had two bad holes, I think, in four rounds. A bogey on Thursday, put it in the water on Sunday, made a double bogey, but he could have made an eight there if he wasn't thinking straight. It's the unmeasurable difference between guys who can do that and guys that can't. I mean, that's what makes a pro. That's what makes a champion. Or as Jack Dempsey said, a champion is a guy who gets up off the floor when he can't. He was Jack Dempsey-like. He was Bobby Jones-like. They all said they could see that he had a chance to win because he never hurried, took his time. Yeah. Uh, Dunlap said that, the, you know, the caddy never got over, over his skis. So he was, he was calm and collected the whole time. Uh, even up to the last putt where he looked at it, he said, you know, the caddy said it's inside left. You've made it a million times. This is just another one. You know, Jones was an amateur his whole life and won a grand slam four of the majors all in one year, which hasn't been done. He was never going to be a pro, wasn't uh, a thing. But our, our pal Jim McLean uh, tweeted out yesterday, go, don't listen to anybody, go pro. And I think where he was coming from is he's got momentum, Nick Dunlop does. He's probably got an invite to every major. If you're running any major, you want him to come. It's just like you wanted Bobby Jones to come. Now, of the, course. the yeah. fact that he didn't take the money doesn't matter. He can still play on the PGA Tour. He won a PGA Tour event. And he's eligible, I think, if he goes pro for all seven of the, you know, the upgraded, what do they call them now, the significant tournaments. So yeah, he gets invited to those, the elevated events. Yeah, so he's got uh, he's got some thinking to do. But as you said, he's also got economics class. <laughs> well, economics class will tell him to, to go pro. The most money won was by, you know, whoever had $100 on Dunlop. Yeah. So if you yeah. had a bet on him, you made more money than any of the golfers. All right, let's go to 1959 U.S. Open where our buddy Billy Casper, you know, so much is said about Billy Casper, but you got to look at the starting point was Ben Hogan, Sam Snead, Claude Harmon, Arnold Palmer, Tommy Bolt. They're all contending. Why do I say Tommy Bolt? Who knows about Tommy Bolt? Guess what? He was the defending U.S. Open champ. He won in 1958. All those guys wanted to rip the face off anybody that got in their way, including Casper. I learned of this tidbit. So there was an African-American gentleman uh, that was around Wingfoot and around golf back then named Zeke. And uh, I knew Zeke because I caddied with him at Wingfoot in the late 60s. But in, in uh, the time of the 1959 U.S. Open, Zeke was as good a golfer, such a good golfer that by many accounts I've heard and you've heard, he could have been on the PGA Tour. And uh, today, most likely would have been on the PGA Tour. The tidbit that I learned, which is interesting, 
the qualifier, so there's uh, qualifying to get into the US Open. In 1959, that year, the qualifier was held at Baltusrol Golf Club. Zeke went over there to New Jersey and he missed qualifying by one shot. Wow. So many athletes, uh, among other things, were deprived of greatness or recognizable greatness. Ted Williams even recognized that when, in his induction to the Hall of Fame speech, like, where are all the African-American players that should be up here with me? But Zeke was there, and uh, all but one shot. He might have been part of the history of Wingfoot even more so. Yep, and Casper was having none of it. He stayed composed. He, he did his one-putt run. And and the famous layup on three west, which we could talk about. The, the, the most significant thing about Casper uh, laying up on three west, which I know members at Wingfoot are, are aware of this for the through the history of that hole. That hole was surrounded on both sides by overhanging trees. I mean, you could actually be in the bunker, left or right, and have branches in the way of your escape. So. You look at the hole today and you wonder why would a pro lay up because it's wide open left and right. You, you know, you don't want to miss it left or right anyway. But back then, missing it left or right, you could you could conceivably be in jail. So Casper thought must have thought that out with, you know, a great deal, of, put a great deal of thought into that and then executed four times in a row, lay up and up and down. So pressure affects different players different ways. I love the pressure. The more pressure I had, the more I could concentrate. And I just loved being in the lead because I was going to give it away. The greens were some of the toughest I've ever played in that many of them had dual breaks. I grew up on greens like that from the time I was 11, 12, 13, 14. And, uh, I just felt at home. I don't like to dwell in the negative. I like to dwell in the positive. 114 for 72 holes is, now that's positive. <laughs> and I made some decisions that were just very positive decisions. And the greatest one was I laid up on the third hole. I decided that I was gonna lay up. There's no water on the third hole. It was the sand trap, big sand trap on the left, a big bunker on the right, and green tilted from the back to the front. And I decided I was gonna lay up for four rounds, and I made four pars on the hole, and uh, one by one shot over Bob Rosberg. I struggled the first hole and scored a par, one putting the green, and the second hole I was in a trap off the tee and the trap short of the green came out and scored another par with a one putt. And of course the third hole, the par three, I one putted. The fourth hole, I one putted again. In the fifth hole, I one putted again. I one putted the last four greens finishing my third round. <laughs> I one putted nine straight greens. To be able to go out there and shoot one under par the first six holes, uh, that sort of cemented the round for me. A stout pro from the Golden Slope finishes with 282, two over par for the tournament, just enough to beat Rosberg out by one stroke. It's a $12,000 triumph for Bill Casper, and that's only the beginning of what the title is worth to an Open champion. You are remembered for winning U.S. Open. It's the one I wanted to win when I started playing.
it just adds such depth to your life that you almost can't explain it. It's something that is never taken away from you. My name will always be on that trophy. He knew what he was doing, and it took him home. His thought process is it didn't have, the hole didn't have any water. But he also thought the way you did, charting out how he was going to play the 18 holes at Wingfoot. He knew that hitting it 10 or 15 yards left pin high or 10 or 15 yards right pin high was equivalent to putting it in the water. It's a one-shot penalty. Yeah. So he almost one-putted half the greens. You're not, if you're one-putting nine, I don't think I've ever seen anybody one-putt nine times in a row. I think I played once with Billy O'Keefe when he seemed to do that, much <laughs> to the chagrin of Steve. Uh, but that's think about that, nine one-putts in a row. Well, nine that's, one putts in a row, but think about if you're Bob Rosberg. Bob, that's the other thing. Nobody talks that much about Bob Rosberg. He had a 35-footer on the front edge of 18 West. Now, that's a putt that's made one in 10,000 times. It's not the same putt that Jones made in 1929, which is about 10 or 12 feet. And you could see the break. If you, you had the heart, you might make it. This is up and over and down to grandmother's house putt. But Rosberg makes that putt. He's tied at 282. And uh, right. or if Billy Casper has a fantastic four rounds and only has 31 putts, they're tied. But Billy Casper won that. And, and he said that he felt if he was ever going to win a major, it was going to be this week when he came to Wingfoot. He said it was the most important major he ever won. He won the Masters. Uh, he won the U.S. Open twice. And he had such fond memories. You know, his wife was good friends with uh, Sam Sneed's wife and Ben Hogan's wife. And and his lore lives on because it's, you know, it's seldom that you get, certainly with a guest, to the three West T that you don't say this is where Casper laid up four days in a row. So his name is still alive and kicking out on that golf course. So this is the 74 Open. Hale Irwin won Massacre at Wingfoot. We all know that. It's been covered very well. But if you had to bet... Bert Yancey, Tom Watson, Arnold Palmer, uh, Hale Irwin. Hale Irwin and Tom Watson were in the final pairing. Um, and then you looked at uh, Jim Colbert and Forrest Fessler. Who would be the second place finisher of all those guys? Clearly, you'd think uh, Watson or Palmer. Sure. Well, Forrest Fessler finished second at nine over. <laughs> Lou Graham and Bert Yancey. Bert Yancey may have been the only person. He was leading after uh, a point in time. He had some concentration challenges. Great game. And they say that he, he could have, should have won. He was friends with a bunch of guys at Wingfoot back then. Palmer just didn't get, he just, he got up and down. He just was battling it. You know, he finished at 12 over, so he was five behind. And Colbert did pretty well. Not many people remember him, but when he went on a senior tour, he won everything like Longer did for a few years. That was a 74 Open. You think they made the golf course too hard in 1974 by all accounts that you've heard? You know, the philosophy back then was to to separate the men from the boys. So I, I believe the USGA's um, intention was to make it impossible. And, right. it, and they did they did it at Shinnecock that one year too. They actually destroyed a green trying to make it uh, impossible. So 
I think they, their mentality there has changed a little bit, uh, hopefully, and that game of golf doesn't need to be played out of eight feet rough all the time. Let's move to the 84 Open, and then we can get to the 2006 Open here. The 84 Open, again, Jim McKay was involved, Jack Whitaker, Dave Moore, Peter Alice. Peter Alice was somebody you like to listen to, Bob Rosberg. Well, he had some understanding of the Wingfoot Golf Course. The 1984 Open was... Uh, Fuzzy Zeller and Greg Norman. In that open, if you go back and watch it, Jim Thorpe was one under par starting the round, and so was Tim Simpson. Nicholas is only two over. Johnny Miller was two over. Curtis Strange, Herb, Hubert Green, Hal Sutton, Slant, Lanny Watkins, and Lee Trevino. That's quite a mix of contenders that a lot of those guys have won majors or big tournaments to, to, sure. to assume that a guy like Fuzzy Zeller, who obviously thought – I think he was the Masters champion before coming to Wingfoot. So he had some some uh, a prior experience. Yes, and he, he was a happy fellow. He always looked like he was having a good time. I love Jim McKay's intro. Quote, the spike shoes of the game's great personalities have clattered through the locker room since the flamboyant days of the early 20s. Not anymore. Not anymore. There's, carpet, there's carpets and soft spikes now. You can you can actually walk through there and no one will know you're there. Dave, this putt down the hill, uh, what about this one? You wouldn't care to name the odds on getting this in one, would you? No, thank you. Plus, uh, he's got to try not to make six. Yeah. I mean, the it, dilemma here, are you want to make it, obviously, is you want to make all of them. But if he gives it a wrap, Peter, it's going to go five or six feet back. Not bad-looking putt, though, is it? Can you believe it? Do you think that some things are fate and some things are meant to be because you can't do any better than that? That is almost awesome and godlike. Fuzzy, he may think he's made a birdie. I don't know what Fuzzy thinks. He'll I, I doubt that sick. seriously, Peter. Uh, but uh, would you like to go over the three fours that man just made? <laughs> At 16, 17, no. 18? You can't make one four out of the three. No. I think it's just incredible. And that, when you try and explain to non-golfers what this game's all about and how it can change, it, it's seemingly such a passive game. He surrenders. <laughs> no, 2006, which is the owner of the most famous, probably uh, shot or non-shot at Wingfoot, uh, or infamous, was, you know... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you talking about the shot that... Um... I think it was the third round that Patrick Harrington tried to do um, about 220 yards out on the right rough on 18 West, where he took out probably a four wood and hit it 10 feet. Oh, no, maybe you're talking about the shot that Phil Mickelson taught, but not the one you're thinking about. Earlier in the tournament, he was 180, 75 yards in the left rough on five West. And he, he, tried, to, he tried to feather yeah. a five, a, a, what was it, like a four hybrid? And how far did no, that go? What am I thinking about the Colin Montgomery shot on eight? No, it wasn't that shot either. You could be thinking about the Colin Montgomery shot to get him in position, which was yep. he hit this low cut runner on 17. It seemed like all those guys were tired and were missing it right. Montgomery, well, Phil missed it left on uh, 17 and managed to get out of it. But Montgomery hit this low chiseler through those trees there, and there were more trees there, weren't there? And, he ran it on, and then he hit this thing where it must have broke 
10 inches the last six, five, six feet, and it went in. There were a lot of memorable shots in that open, as there are in every open, but they were all dwarfed by lefty's 18th hole, <laughs> which I'm sure he still wakes up in the middle of the night thinking about from time to time. I, I know I would. You know, and a, a lot of people um, criticize him for hitting driver off 18, but that, that's Mickelson. He was always going to do that. He's He's always, that's how he plays. I think his mistake was, uh, you know, the second shot, not the first shot. I don't condemn him for hitting driver off 18. And well, if it was the COVID year, he could have easily won it because he would have had a wide open shot from over there. There wouldn't yeah. have been any tent. He'd have been in the middle of the fairway with an eight iron into the green. And I like his chances in the playoff. <laughs> you know, that was the year where, you know, the shouting, Aussie, 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 oi, 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 all that, you know, was big. I don't know if it was from the President's Cup or what. But there were some of that going on during that open. But I said, look, if he got in the playoff, you might have heard a few Aussie, Aussie, Aussies on Monday going down one west for the 18-hole playoff. And then a few of our friends from Long Island, maybe Beth Page, would have silenced those guys, and it would have been all Phil, Phil, Phil. Well, he was a very likable player on, on the tour. You know, he's got his sense of humor. I thought about this today. I want to pose to you. Who made more money? As you look at the brand, Jeff Ogilvie's brand or Phil's brand, Jeff Ogilvie won the 2006 U.S. Open. They usually say that's worth a lot of money, maybe $10 million. Five. Okay, but did Phil Mickelson make as much money or more by losing it? You know, Phil Mickelson blows open. Ogilvie, you know, wins. So no. Mickelson stole the headlines even though he didn't win, and he, and he didn't try to steal the headlines, but – you can't talk about that open without talking about that first and foremost. Yeah. And like I say, Mickelson's forever on on uh, Colin Montgomery's Christmas list because otherwise Colin Montgomery would be the one taking all the heat for, you know, not not getting it done. These guys are so good and and, and accurate that sometimes it 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 hurts them. They don't see uh what an imaginative player might see and you know like I say, Tillinghouse designed those greens to be your 15th club. Or if you understand how to play them, there's other shots available to you. And I don't I don't think these guys see that kind of thing all the time. They see 108 yards. I can hit this exactly 108 yards, boom, without realizing. But I could also hit it 115 yards. And, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm still good. But that's what pressure does. You know, and that's, you know as amateurs, we know what pressure does. We're like – you get under enough pressure. So like, I just want to hit this shot now before I, you know, faint. But, but the real pros, they look at the pressure and they, and they think through it. And, and Montgomery overthought, but I, I don't think he thought correctly, which was his problem. He, he was thinking defensively as opposed to, you know, how do I win? DeChambeau proved early to, at least to himself, I can hit this anywhere. I can, this rough is nothing to me. And he, he the rough didn't bother him. You know, Ogilvie did chip in on the 17th hole, but he got up and down on 18 from a very tough spot. He, you that know, was that, that was the shot of the open, in my opinion, that, that wedge at 18. To, and then the six-footer playing it outside the hole down into – to make his par, you go back yep. to – then before that, uh, the 1984 open, there's clearly pressure with Fuzzy and uh, – when Norman in the regular event, and now Fuzzy doesn't have to make par there. 
If he doesn't make par, Norman wins the open. Fuzzy hits a great iron shot in there and has a chance to birdie it up the hill to the hole. But that's a little bit like like Ogilvy too. If you think about it, how often do you see a golf tournament won from behind by a guy who makes a par on the last hole? Leader in the clubhouse. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes leader in the clubhouse does pay off for Ogilvy. It did. And but it's usually a birdie. It's usually a birdie that launches you into the, on eighteen that launches you up the board. He just pards the hole, and and watch the uh, dominoes fall behind him. Well, the pressure meter got to Norman, as Billy Harmon chronicled the shot he hit to number 18, 70 second shot into the bleachers right, a, a standard stock six iron after he put the drive in again the same place as Colin Montgomery was in yep. 20, uh, 2006. Norman's in basically in the same divot. So maybe Montgomery was saying to his caddy, what did Norman hit here? <laughs> But the pressure got yeah, to him. You better, you better give me a seven. I'm not hitting a six. <laughs> you know, Fuzzy Zeller kind of whistles and has a smoke or kind of yeah. does a little tune or twirl or whatever. And he's got a light. And that's how he deals with pressure. He dealt with it great and deserved to one win the Open. He didn't, He just annihilated Norman. Fuzzy's whole personality was like that. Yeah. I was, I was at Wingfoot one day, and I was rushing to the first tee because I was going to get yelled at for being late. And I came, you know, hurrying around the corner and, and walked headlong into Fuzzy Zeller, who was coming the other way. He's like, whoa, calm down. You can't play golf at that speed. I was like, I'm I'm, I'm playing in a wolf game at the tee. You want to join us? He goes, sounds good, but I'm, you know, I've got other plans. But he was just a, you know, a, a laid back, happy fellow. Erwin uh, was a different kind of guy, won three opens, but he had this, you know, workmanlike, you know, he hit the forward when he needed to from 240 yep. 50 on the middle of the green or the three iron at nine west and birdies that long one, Peter McGarry. And no one can run around the green faster than Irwin. No, he could run around yeah. the green. That was so, so un That's why that was funny when he went and slapped everybody's hands. No, I think it was in Medina. He should have done it in the 74 open, but he dealt with the pressure and had that lead. We talked about Billy Casper in 59. You know, he says people deal with pressure in different ways. He liked pressure. He just, yeah. you know, he, he was a performer. Well, what do they say? Pressure is a, a privilege. Billy that's what the, King, the, pressure is a privilege. We just kind of paraphrase it, but that's the nuts of it. And then Jones, as your brother recounted from some of the sports writers, said that that putt, and that 18th hole that Jones played in regulation in 29, having to make that that par was probably the most pressure that Bobby Jones ever faced. Had he not made the par, he may not have made uh, what Snobby's ever done, the Grand Slam in 1930, because that many people said he wouldn't have gone over to Europe. How many things would be different in the world of golf if he didn't make that putt? It's incalculable. I don't suspect there'll be many changes between now and 2028. You can't lengthen some of these holes. The greens, they sort of slow up anyway. When they have the open there, we're putting them faster in May than they seem to be putting them in June. So they give these guys a little bit of a break on the stip meter. So but we should also mention the amateurs that have come through there. You know, we've had the USM there in 1940. And then again, in 2004, when Ryan Moore won it in 2004, I, I I was with a guy that was playing for for the first time. Brian Harmon was in that amateur at 
Look where he's come from there. Champion golfer of the year, excuse me, Brian Harmon. Would be fun yep. to have him on the podcast. He'd never do it, though. I think he would do it. Yeah, Brian Harmon's buddies with uh, Kevin Kisner. But, you know, Kevin Kisner is an outstanding announcer. They gave him a couple of shots. Regardless of what happens, Kevin Kisner has uh, got a good future behind the mic, like a Ken Venturi. Ken Venturi knew yep. everybody. Not only the players, but all the celebrities. And he earned that. And uh, Kevin Kisner. He knew the game inside out. The unique thing about Ken Venturi, which was what made him such a great announcer, was he was probably as good, as certainly as notable as the people he was talking about all the time. But it never came across that way. It would almost be like Mickey Mantle calling a baseball game in a neutral way. Yeah, take double bogey out of play. (laughs) Take bogey out of play. Venturi did it with a lot of style and a lot of knowledge. Yeah, it just goes to show you, you now you got guys, Dan Hicks or Jim McKay, or these guys are so good at what they do and they, they make it look so easy that when someone doesn't do it that well, you think they're kind of, you know, I don't know, unqualified, but it's not that it's just, they're just not as good at it as, as some of these guys, you know, that are just <laughs> off the charts with the way they call sports. We look forward to the next episode, which may be, uh, who knows, we might try that who's on first routine again. We might try some gadgets from James Bond. We might talk to some other people. Oh, we may talk to Jody Vasquez about Ben Hogan. People seem to love to listen. to, And I just heard a great compliment that Jody Vasquez talks about the life of Ben Hogan better than any reporter. You were talking a minute ago about the uh, who's on first or the Bond gadgets. Maybe we ought to do a combination of the Bond gadgets and who's on first. So we'll just come back, you know, when Bond gets through with you, no one's on first. That's right. (laughs) I don't know how we're going to use that one. All right, that's a wrap. All right, man. See you later. I'm Douglas LaRue Smith, the official historian of Wingfoot and Golf Club. I've devoted uh, much of my life to the history of Wingfoot in this clubhouse right here in this room. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Uh, uh, well, at least we have the laugh to add at the end. <laughs> Right. We're, we've gone from 12 handicaps at this to 19 handicaps in just a week. <laughs> that, that's what happened. Somebody changed my grip, and the next thing you know, I can't do the podcast anymore. I felt like I was in the first row of the uh, first pew at church right during the sermon. <laughs> and your brother was poking my you. Brother, my brother was making me laugh. Thanks for joining Billy us Casper, today. Billy Horner. We really appreciate your Double feedback. Indemnity. And please... Marky. Subscribe to the show, hit them hard, and hit them off. That's 36 holes.